1: That right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including e-books and audiobooks, with the code 50, 50, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to this episode of New Books Intellectual History. New Books Intellectual History is a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Thomas Kingston, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Mark Mazawa, the Ira D. Wallach Professor of History at Columbia University. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, today we're going to be talking about your book, The Greek Revolution, 1821 and the Making of Modern Europe. But before we start to talk about the book, I was wondering if you'd mind telling us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into history?
0: Sure. Um i'm i teach in the us but i'm a brit i'm from london uh and i originally studied classics and uh i fell in love with greece um but i had a a legendary tutor uh, at college um, who was so impressive and i felt so far beyond um, my intellectual capacities, that I was rather intimidated. And I thought, I'm not cut out for classics and ancient Greek, but I was getting more and more interested in the modern country. Uh, it was at the time the junta had fallen. And uh, uh, after a few years, a left-wing government came into power in Greece. It's Very exciting time. And I started to get interested in modern history. And so uh, uh my studies took me in in that at that time rather unusual direction
1: okay and uh and, and and this book um i mean i suspect anybody looking at it would be um rather um short-sighted if they didn't notice that 1821 uh, is 200 years ago uh and i believe this played a role in your motivation for writing the book
0: Uh, Well, it shouldn't have done because I had the idea many years ago to write this. In fact, the idea came, um, as you'll recall, just over a decade ago, Greece was very badly hit by the financial crisis. And an austerity program was imposed on the country by the IMF and the European Commission and the European Central Bank. And it was, it was a very difficult, very humiliating time for the Greeks. They were basically being told what to do. And there were many people who had a very extreme version of the question that played something of a role in the Brexit debates as well, which is to say, what is sovereignty today? What does it mean to be an independent country? And it, that question posed itself very powerfully in the Greek case, and it was so. It was at that time that I thought, uh, well, to answer this question, uh, it would be interesting to go back to the moment in which independence was achieved and figure out what they were fighting for and what they thought they had got. And I started to see the whole two hundred span, two hundred year span of modern European history from the 1820s until now as a kind of arc uh, in which uh, the nation-state had come sort of out of nowhere to become the norm for Europe and then for the world uh, and uh, had then, in the age of globalisation, entered a new era in which its value was being questioned. But uh, so the idea for this book had gone back away but uh, other things had got in the way of it and so we got to about 2017 and 18 and I thought that uh, my publishers are going to hang draw and quarter me if I don't get this book out for 2021. So in the end the bicentenary did play a role.
1: Yeah I mean there's a, there's a, there's a really nice um, uh, kind of I'm almost uh, a, an insight into the into it in the introduction where you mentioned that the role of a historian is normally to deconstruct and be sort of a, 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 anti-national and tear this apart so exploring this was quite different and I think as someone uh, reading it who didn't know that much about Greece and all the Greek revolution in in this context um, but did manage to make 5,000 words of notes uh, I was really surprised at how many different strands were pulled together um, in the book and historically uh, to create what we now see as Greece because at the start of the book, um, it's possibly an understatement, but things don't look very promising. Um, it's post-Napoleonic Europe, right?
0: Yes. Yes. Th- things were very difficult and very different. And um, In 1815, uh, the French were defeated, and the powers that defeated them just wanted no more trouble. Uh, And so the idea of any kind of uprising was anathema to them. And in fact, the conservative powers banded together to crush revolutions when they occurred in Piedmont and Sicily and later on in Spain. And so it was a very unpropitious time for the Greeks to be thinking of rising up against the Ottomans. If you turn to the to the Ottoman side, there was no Greece, of course. There were no nation states in the Balkans or anywhere else. There was one of the world's great empires that was run on completely different lines to anything that we'd recognise today. Um, it was basically run on the basis of loyalty to the Sultan and fidelity to the ruling house, and then on the basis of your religious allegiance or affiliation. So the Ottomans delegated enormous amount of power to the ecclesiastical hierarchy of each faith. So there was no Greece, but there was a very powerful Orthodox uh, patriarch in Constantinople who was had the responsibility for the good behavior of all the Orthodox peoples of the Empire, whatever language they spoke. So part of the complexity of this and part of the difficulty for us is just this sheer... Um, task of imagining ourselves in a pre-national world you know we we bandy around labels very easily these days right somebody's french or welsh or scottish or english and we're all aware it's kind of a little bit difficult at the margins to figure out you know but 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 we're pretty confident in in these labels and this was a world in which these labels had no purchase they had no political purchase but what makes the greek case interesting and complicated and i think what explains why it came first was of course that the greece label had a lot of purchase in europe it just wasn't what we think of as a national label it was a claim to cultural learning to to a sense of a, an elite education it was a whole set of associations around the idea of the ancients and the ancient authors that that had come by 1800 to be at the very heart of what it was to be an educated European. Um, So people in Europe were very comfortable talking about Greece and Greeks. But if you were to say to them, OK, where's Greece? Uh, They would have scratched their heads and said, well, well, I suppose it must include Athens uh, and Mycenae and Delphi and one or two other spots. But what do you mean, where's Greece? We're not talking about a place with very clear boundaries. So we're in this very, very different world from the world that we inhabit. And that's, that's the historian's challenge, is to make the sheer implausibility of the passage from the pre-modern world to the, to the modern national world, to make that implausibility come home without losing everybody. It's very easy to make it seem inevitable that nations should have sprung into being. And, and many generations of nationally-minded historians did just that. And the stories they told were 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 not complicated to follow. Uh, but they were wrong, to be blunt about it. It's not how it worked. And in fact, it was the fight itself and the uprising itself that really spread <clears throat> in the region concerned a sense of what it was to be Greek that was completely different from what there had been before.
1: Yeah, I mean, and this is something that comes through throughout the book, is there are... Um, Like, there's an outsider's perspective, which, as you say, is this very classical, cultured, um, or high culture, should I say, um, notion. uh, And then, actually, when we talk about what is now Greece, but was then varying identities, there's almost a... um, perhaps hostility is, a, is is an exaggeration, but these people don't necessarily see themselves as, as, as even as Greeks necessarily, do they? Because there is this association that Greek is linked with paganism, right? And as you it said, they're orthodox.
0: Long, it, that's right. It, 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 it takes a long time. So you, that there, you have to make the distinction between the people who are comfortable with the notion of Greek as descendant of the ancient Greeks. From the vast mass of the people who were not particularly interested in the ancient Greeks, but they were interested in themselves as Christian heirs of the Byzantine Empire. And they had a word for that, which still exists in Greece today, but it's not Helene. And the word is actually Romeos, meaning uh, Roman. And they saw themselves as Romans, by which they meant orthodox heirs to the Byzantine Empire. And um, that had a very different set of connotations and a very different political project was attached to it. However. A lot of the the leaders of the uprising, even though they themselves were not particularly educated men, that is to say not educated in the Western Enlightenment sense, were very well aware that West Europeans had this kind of curious obsession with the ancients, and they understood that this could be a weapon and that they could activate it. And so the classic case of this, I think, is um, uh, when the revolution, the uprising begins, uh, in the south of the Peloponnese in the spring of 1821, it's led by a very wily, astute guy called Mavro Petrobe Mavromichalis, Petro Mavro Michalis, who's basically in the business of aggrandizing his family's power in the, in the remote south of the Mani. Uh, of, of the Peloponnese in the Mani. And he marches into the town of Kalamata and he deposes the Ottoman governor and he announces the beginning of the uprising. And he has, as they all did, he has a couple of educated young chaps with him, his secretaries, and they immediately issue a proclamation to the people of Europe uh, saying the Spartans have risen. So Mavrum and his, his Maniot brigands are now presenting themselves as ancient Spartans to the peoples of Europe. They send this proclamation asking for help. And various uh, young Philhellene volunteers flock through Marseille to come to Greece. And a few months later, some of them land in Marseille, sorry, land in the Peloponnese, in Kalamata. And the first thing they do when they get off the boat is they say, can you direct us to the Spartan assembly? Because we've come to help the ancient Spartans. And the guys in the Cafe Neon look at them and scratch their head and say, you know, what are you talking about? There is no Spartan assembly. It's just us. And they're surrounded by these pretty tough maniot brigands and pastoralists, uh, and they realize, as it were, their conceptual error.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a tension sort of and a a, a sort of a clash that sort of threads throughout uh, the book and throughout the history, right, in that they're a little bit like... um, Benedict Anderson's idea of the sort of the, the 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 pilgrimages to develop this national identity, a lot of the gr- Greek identities coming from uh, the diaspora, right? So we we, we see yes. the foundations in Odessa.
0: So the very start of the well, there's there's a lot of disagreement among historians about how it starts. the 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 the, the, the There is a secret organization, that the Greeks in Odessa and generally in the in the areas around the Black Sea, the diaspora around the Black Sea, they start a secret organization called the Friendly Society. There's nothing unusual about that at all. Everybody and their donkey is founding a secret society in Europe after 1815 because there is this suppressed radical resentment of the conservative victors. And this is not the biggest one. In fact, for a long time, it's very, very small and unimportant. But this Friendly Society suddenly... Uh, expands in eight, after 1818, and it expands in the areas of the diaspora at first because there are large numbers of Greeks uh, uh, in the Danubian principalities in what's now Romania. The, many of them have been welcomed by Catherine the Great into Russia to help the expansion of Russia. The whole southward expansion of Russia to the Black Sea sucks in a large number of Greeks, so they're big Greek communities, quite wealthy. And all the time, young village boys from the Peloponnese are being sent to these towns to keep them out of trouble at the hands of the Ottomans. And there, they're being radicalized. And so this friendly society sucks in these very competent, increasingly literate, but poor and resentful uh, young Greek men, and they decide to proselytize in the ottoman territories and they do this extremely successfully so the diaspora you're quite right plays a very very important role and i think that one thing that is not sufficiently stressed is the role of language and writing it's very very striking how many and it's a boon to the historian and it was a great help to me in writing this how many first-hand accounts survive by the young men, I can't think offhand of one by a woman, but the young men who came from quite humble backgrounds, who get caught up in the fighting. Now, if you look at most parts of peasant Europe in 1820, it's extremely, never mind the rest of the world, very, very unusual that a young man born into a village background would end up being in a position to pen his own recollections. And I think the reason, and it's not true on the whole of the Serbs, it's not true of the Poles, it's not true of the Romanians, it's not true of most of the Russians. Um, How do we explain this? I think we explain this because Greek was the language of church learning. And so there were village schools. And if you were moderately educated, if you were moderately ambitious young village family, you might send your eldest son to the village school. And then you'd get him out of trouble either by training him for the priesthood in a monastery or by sending him as an apprentice to one of these merchant houses. And that's the trajectory that a lot of quite modest families follow uh, and produce young revolutionaries. And so the result is, for the historian, you have these fantastic accounts, not only from the elite. We have elite memoirs. but from these guys who are absolutely in the thick of things and who completely understood the values of the peasant society. And that that's a very precious resource that's also a very unusual resource, and it allows you to appreciate um, exactly what it felt like to be there on the ground when the thing took off.
1: Yeah, and it's from the, from the Danubian principalities that we see the first... Um, and this is something that's also a subject for debate in the book, when, when does the revolution start, right? Uh, and we see this first, your first uprising, uh, and it doesn't quite go to plan, right?
0: <laughs> no. Well, as I said, we're in this pre-national world. So bizarrely, by our lights, the Greek revolution doesn't start in the territory that's now Greece. It starts a 1,000 miles to the north, Uh, on the borders of Romania, and Moldova, Ukraine, and Russia. Uh, Why? Because the leader of the friendly society, the man that they appoint, is a Greek, an elite Greek from a princely family. He's a man called Alexander Ypsilantis, who's very close to the Tsar. He was an aide to the Tsar. He was a military officer. He'd lost an arm fighting in the Russian army. He's a very charismatic figure. People flocked to him. And He decides, for for reasons that still remain a little opaque, that he's going to kick the thing off by uh, crossing the frontier from southern Russia into what's now Romania, to the town of Jassy. And he's going to declare for the Greek Revolution there. And in his very romantic mind... Thousands of people are going to flock for the cause of liberation from the Ottomans, and he's going to march all the way through onto Constantinople. Never mind all of this is a thousand miles away from what will become Greece. Never mind that in the Danubian principalities, his name is associated with that of the corrupt rule of the large landowners of the area. And never mind that the peasants don't speak Greek. They speak Romanian, and they rather mistrust the Greeks. He, he, he is enthralled to this idea of a, a Greek resurrection. And so he starts off from Jassy uh, with very high hopes. And within three or four months, the Ottoman army have marched in and crushed the whole thing. So that first uh, effort to rise up against the Ottomans is completely wiped out. And he escapes across the frontier into the Habsburg Empire where the, Ottoman, where the Austrians say thank you very much and keep him under lock and key for the next seven years, pretty much until his death. Um, so the interesting question is why that isn't the end of the story, why there's a Greek uprising at all, given that the guys who were leading it botched it, started in the wrong place and were completely defeated. And that question of how the Greeks prevail um in these circumstances, against insuperable odds is really I think the key question of the subject:
1: yeah I mean the, the Ottoman reaction to this um, is um, quite severe um they they um, you, you mentioned earlier how the the patriarch is uh, in charge of his uh, religious division, and yeah well why, why don't you tell us what happens there? <laughs>
0: Well, I think it's worth stressing that um, violence is a is a strategic option for both sides from the start. And in fact, the history of this first national uprising is a bloody one, and we would, I suppose, not be surprised by that today. So that when Ipsilantis starts off the Greek uprising in the Danubian principalities, it's actually the Greeks who turn on the Muslims of those towns and in the case of one town just apparently because we don't have many sources massacre them all and it's as though they're sending a signal both to the sultan and to their own supporters this is now an all or nothing combat we are fighting for a kind of ethnic purity which not everybody who had conceptualized the uprising believed in but violence pushes you down that so they start with great bloodshed. The revolutionaries in the Peloponnese are also in a pretty vengeful mood, and then the Sultan, when he gets the first reports of the uprising and he gets the reports of the death of Muslims in in the towns of the Danubian principalities, reacts with extraordinary harshness himself. And yes, he has the patriarch executed, which in itself was 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 severe but not um not perhaps by his standards an unacceptable punishment because the patriarch was legally responsible for the loyalty of the orthodox and he'd evidently failed in the sultan's view but he has him executed in a very public exemplary and humiliating way and then the patriarch is over 80 and he leaves his body he's hung and and his body is left dangling over the entrance of the Patriarchate. so uh, and this is then the signal for a kind of bloodletting against against the greeks of constantinople um And of course, the Sultan, we're not talking about a state in which the Sultan has highly disciplined, well-organized troops under his control. It's a matter of giving signals and then signals to start and signals to stop. The severity of the bloodletting in Constantinople shocks the European powers. It shocks the Russians. Um, It doesn't shock them sufficiently to intervene, at least not to intervene in a military sense, which some people want but it's the beginning i think of a, of the rethinking process in europe the very very slow beginning because actually there won't be a serious rethink for another 4 years but it's the beginning of a sense that the ottoman reaction might be worse than the greek uprising itself and and uh, the austrians in particular who supporters of the ottomans trying to make them realize that the question of the legitimacy of their cause is a real one. But the the, the Sultan is is initially in a very vengeful mood.
1: And we mentioned uh, the Russians briefly there. The Russians are um, sort of in the wings for much of this story. They're they're a looming presence. The shadow is over the the situation. Um, But it's also, um, the shadow is open to interpretation, right? And it's it's used, it's... um, should we say embroidered uh, creatively, and, and that plays a huge role, uh, both um, on both sides. Uh, the, yes. Both the Greeks and the Ottomans have this very um, the, the the threat of the Russians plays a very key role. Yeah,
0: yes, the 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 the, the Russians had been at war on and off with the Ottomans for decades, um, and indeed would would return to war against the Ottomans in eighteen twenty eight. And the Greek revolutionaries claimed that their c- conspiratorial activity was premised on triggering a Russian invasion in support of them. And so they they got supporters, they got Greeks to join the friendly society by telling them that they were confident that the Tsar was sympathetic and that once they had started the uprising and the Ottomans had taken action against them, the Russians would come in. This was complete, well, I was going to say this was complete crap. That's not true exactly. Uh, um, It is true that the the Tsar had no intention of doing this. But Russia is a very big place. And the local officials in southern Russia were very sympathetic to the Greeks. Both the civilian authorities and and the military authorities. And and the Greek conspirators had many friends among them. So they may well have heard what they wanted to hear. Uh, And they preached that the Tsar would come in. And in fact, they took very uh, extreme measures to ensure that this message was the only message that reached the Greeks in the Peloponnese. And uh, when a Greek emissary is returning from Moscow, who's been sent by one of the Greek notables, bearing irrefutable evidence that in fact the the Russians are not going to intervene, because he's been told this by the Russian foreign minister, the friendly society uh, decide to assassinate him so that he can't bring this message back. And he is assassinated. So these are pretty uncompromising guys. When they rise up, they are confident that the Russians are going to intervene. um, And they tell the peasants in the Peloponnese the Russians are coming. Uh, There's even one case that I came across where it appears that a member of the friendly society dresses up as a Russian naval officer uh, in order to persuade the local townspeople that the Russians are on their way. Um, and, of course, the Ottomans are terrified of exactly the same thing. Uh, there's nothing more um, disturbing for the Ottoman Empire than the thought of the Russian army and especially the Russian navy descending on what is still a pretty vulnerable capital. Constantinople and arguably it's one of the things that uh, helps the Greeks initially is that the Ottomans can't be sure that the Russians are not coming and so they have to keep um, significant forces and especially naval forces in the vicinity of the capital uh, just in case. Um, We know very little still after all this time about the Ottoman thinking imperial thinking about how to respond to the Greek uprising. But it seems clear that they were very, very worried about the Russians. The Russians were torn. The Tsar was torn. The Tsar Tsar was torn between two competing imperatives. The imperative to suppress revolution wherever it occurred in Europe, to suppress radicalism wherever it occurred, and the imperative to help the fellow Orthodox. And so he swung between these two positions. But for the first four or five years of the uprising, the anti-revolutionary position is winning out in Russian policy. And he is sympathetic to the Austrians who say we must do nothing. We must let the Ottomans take care of this themselves. And so for the first four or five years, the Russians do nothing. And then the great change occurs when they finally lose patience with this.
1: And it's this sort of... Uh, the mystery of the Russians uh, and the fear of the Ottomans that causes, uh, sorry to say, despite the failure of the initial uh, uprising, that causes the the actions in what we would now know as Greece, right?
0: Yes. Um, I think everybody in Europe had pretty much expected that without foreign assistance, the uprising would be crushed very quickly because all the odds were against it, the... The military odds, the demographic odds, the fiscal odds. This was still a powerful empire. It was hundreds of years old. It had its own bureaucracy. It ought to have been able to crush a poorly organized peasant uprising with no clear leadership. I mean, and it's still something of a mystery why they didn't. And so the general assumption in Europe had been, this is all going to be a bit unpleasant for a bit, but... uh, the Ottoman sultan will prevail and the principle of legitimacy will be upheld. And then it starts to become clear that the Greeks are hanging on and that successive efforts by the Ottomans to invade have failed. And we can go into why, why they failed, but they had failed. And there's a kind of stalemate. And this in this stalemate, the killing is going on. And then the Ottomans... Um, in, in a desperate fix, um, call in their allies uh, uh, or subordinate. Really, the Pasha of Egypt, who is probably the most powerful subordinate in the Ottoman Empire to the Sultan, and the Pasha of Egypt, Mehmet Ali, is an extraordinary figure, and he is in the middle of a modernization of Egypt, in which he's nominally in the, of, obedient to the Sultan, but in fact he's laying the foundations for his own independence, which he eventually achieved. And the the centerpiece of this strategy is the creation of a modern Egyptian army. And so it's the Pasha of Egypt with his modern army, the first modern Muslim army in the Middle East, who the Sultan calls in against the Greeks. And Mehmet Ali sends his son, Ibrahim Pasha, who turns out to be a commander of genius and Uh, Ibrahim Pasha uh, begins very effectively to crush what is left of the Greek uprising. But he does so in a very brutal way. He enslaves thousands of people uh, and he starts sort of um, uh, destroying whole swathes of the countryside to force the villagers to declare for the sultan. And the news of this really shocks the West Europeans, the French and the British, um, their shock is partly what we'd call humanitarian. It's partly religious, that they're shocked that a Muslim power is doing this to Christians. It's partly, one has to say, racial, that they are shocked that African soldiers are coming into Europe and enslaving white Christian women and children. And so... This uh, causes something of a, a shift in public opinion in Britain and France. And it has to be said it causes the Tsar the in Russia to change his mind as well. And uh, so in, after the Egyptian intervention in Greece... Um, as it were, because of the fear that the Greeks will be defeated, these three European powers, the British, the French and the Russians, decide to change their mind and to work together to stop the Greeks being completely destroyed as they see it. It's uh, the first humanitarian intervention in, effect, in history.
1: And this is something else that um, I found incredibly interesting was that even after all of this, uh, the struggles going on for a, a number of years, and normally in, that sort of, in these sort of uh, histories, we sort of see some sort of crystallization of identity. But at this point, it's still very disparate, right? You have uh, local, um, local forces that are very regionally uh, loyal um, and also, um, shall we say, uh, maybe not the most patriotic in how they treat their uh, fellow countrymen.
0: Yes. I mean if you look at the Greek side, first of all it's widely recognized from the time on and they use the term that there was a civil war within the uprising, that Greeks were fighting Greeks, mostly on a regional basis, but not not entirely on a regional basis. So the Greeks of the Peloponnese were fighting the Greeks of central Greece on the other side of the Gulf of Corinth. But I think more generally you're quite right that if you look at what's motivating most of the well known leaders, it's much more old-fashioned concerns. Uh, They're they're wedded to a particular region or even a particular valley or a particular peninsula. Um, One notable family, we know that the leader of that family, he didn't like to leave his island. And And we know that Colocotronis didn't really like to leave the Peloponnese. And that's their conception of what they're fighting for. And, uh, and of course, they're fighting to get rich if they're poor, or they're fighting to stay rich if they had been doing well under the Ottomans. But what very few of them are fighting for is anything that looks like a nation state. No. And in fact, to a certain extent, it's the pressure from outside that is forcing them to stay together and forcing a political structure on them. It's not entirely true because one of the really interesting things about this uprising is how early on they seem to be committed to the forms of constitutional government and representative government. And so there's all this setting up of national assemblies and articulating of constitutions. But this is going on alongside this terrible internecine fighting and bloodshed, and many of them come from a tradition in which it's completely normal to rise up against the sultan and then negotiate with the Sultan for the terms upon which you'll be readmitted into the empire, having got something out of it. And so a number of the leaders of the uprising clearly thinking in those terms too.
1: And this this, this financial aspect is something else that is very clear. I mean, uh, we talk about how armies, armies march on their stomach, but it seems like a lot of these generals and commanders are marching on, uh, the, shall we say, the size of their purse, um, because they're refusing to act um, if they don't have the funding, right? And the way they often raise funding is um, less than honourable manners. Um, Yes.
0: Well, I started to think that this question of how the armies were fed and how they were paid was the key to understanding the whole thing. And uh, because it's not a particularly noble aspect of the story, the historians haven't paid a lot of attention to it. But in fact, when you get into the documents, they are full of captains saying, well, I'll march if you guarantee you know, my wage of 10 grossier a month for me and fi- my men. I mean, they're haggling over money the whole time. The archives, there's something there's something over 15 volumes of archives of the Greek Revolution that was published by the Greek Parliament. And they're, they're, some of them are full of these endless kind of reimbursement forms. But It's quite extraordinary. Everybody's thinking about how they're being paid. Good question. How were people... Paid In this situation where there was no central authority, it, the, on the whole, the land armies were levied uh, on the basis of the promise of pay. And the pay could either come in because the government had just got money from an English loan or from basically from plunder. And only in the third place from taxation, because, you know, taxation was taxation by these Greek revolutionaries was something of a kind of arbitrary concept, really. If you were in one island in the Cyclades and a ship came from another island, said, we are the revolution and we want a tenth of your crop. You weren't naturally going to say, oh, yes, we recognize that you are now the tax collector. We're going to give it to you. So the real history was of these terrific fights. Over the economic surplus that would enable men to be in the field at all and then bear in mind that most of these people are either either sailors or they're peasants who farm the land and the land dictates its own rhythms so most of them will not fight after St Demetrius's day in the autumn because they have to get home for the last of the harvest and they won't go off to campaign before St George's Day in April in the spring because they have to sow. And so the whole campaigning history of the Greek War of Independence was basically set by the peasant calendar. Once you understood that, you understood why, you understood many of the vicissitudes of the fighting itself.
1: I think one thing that really surprised me about this was the role that the Albanians played. Uh, And maybe this is due to my (coughs) regional ignorance, but uh, not only were the Albanians... uh, Extraordinarily influential uh, in terms of military forces, but they were also um, sort of p- permeating throughout Greece. Uh, and I mean, you speak of um, one of the islands—I believe it's Hydra—where uh, they, where they, where the men still speak Albanian, even though they've been there for generations. And this, so, this sort of, uh, as you said earlier, this idea we're living in this age of nations—a um, national revolution—you expect everybody to be nationalists, and yet the Albanians are there as this um unknown force in a way in, in in terms of history
0: i think one of the things you see from this history is that wars national wars are really wars to create a nation they create the fighting creates a nation it's not that the nation went to war to fight for its own existence and so if you look at the territories that will become greece there are many in some places a majority of people who speak greek and are christian um in some places, you have people who speak Greek and are Muslim. But you have these areas of very strong Albanian settlement. The Albanians live in this area that in the time they called Arvanitia, Albania, I suppose. But it has no, doesn't have the territorial definition of today. It's much bigger. And they were very powerful. Uh, uh, they included very powerful um, provincial leaders who could levy large numbers of fighting men and the Albanians were well known as fighters, uh, and they formed the core of the Ottoman forces in the Greek War of Independence. But they, many of them, especially those from the southern part of arvanitia had very close friendships and connections with Greek fighters. In fact, many of the Greeks spoke Albanian, and many of the Albanians spoke some Greek. And then there was another thing about the Albanians, which Byron liked very much, they really didn't care very much about they, religious affiliation wasn't determinate for them. So the, the Albanians included Christians and Muslims, and then they included many Muslims who were belonged to a sect called the Bektashi, a Sufi sect, uh, who had a very syncretic view, a very open view to Christianity. Um, the most famous uh, of the Albanian chieftains, Ali Pasha, who fascinated Byron and who Byron visited, was probably a Bektashi, his wife was a Greek Christian, his favorite wife was a Greek Christian. He had very close relationships with most of the Greeks in the revolution. And so we start to see that they've written out of this story, which is normally presented as a Greeks against Turks story, was this very important local component of Albanians. Some of them fought on the Ottoman side, and some of them fought on the Greek side. and indeed, some of the leaders of the Greek side, you, you've mentioned the, the most important shipping family from the island of Idra were called Kunduriotis, They spoke Albanian at home. and uh, They wrote to each other. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> they spoke to each other uh, in Albanian uh, as well when they didn't want the Greeks to understand. Uh, neither the Greeks nor the, let's call them the Turks, trusted the Albanians because they felt their primary allegiance was to themselves and that they were very mercenary. Of course, plenty of the Greek leaders were mercenary too, but it made for a very unstable element. And so you find yourself in the thick of a web of duplicity and intrigue. Um, That's one one of the reasons why the war dragged on so long, that the commanders in charge of each side could never quite trust their own fighters. And their own fighters wanted to get rich, this is to generalize, and didn't want to die. And so they had very well-honed techniques for reaching out to the fighters on the other side to minimize the amount of actual fighting that went on. Now, of course, this is completely contrary to the usual myths about this kind of war, which are all about the brave heroes charging into battle and fighting to their death. And some people did fight to their death and did a lot of fighting. But the fighters were pretty good at minimizing fighting as well
1: yeah um and so with all of this going on it's, the conflict is going on for a long time the uh the local greek peasants i think in like, like like in most conflicts are the real people who are suffering uh they are being looted by their own um freedom fighters shall we say they're being uh threatened by the the ottomans who are coming back um and and as you say uh, ibrahim pasha arrives uh and at this point, it looks like it's all over for the Greeks, really, right? I mean, they, yes. they, they are that disorganized. Things are not going well. They're about at breaking point. Yes.
0: Yes, I thought that the unsung heroes, if you have to find heroes, the unsung heroes of this story were the Greek peasants, Um, especially the women and the children, but the the farming men as well, because they somehow manage to keep some kind of economic activity going in the most difficult circumstances, when, as you say, they're really being plundered by everybody. They are not perhaps being killed by their own side in the way that the Turkish army or the Egyptian army will come in and sometimes massacre villages, but they're being plundered and they're being tortured for their riches. In just the same way and it was their endurance that was in a way the prerequisite for independence because they keep going as long as they do once the Egyptian army comes in it targets the peasants and it in fact embarks upon a kind of policy of of, uh, environmental warfare or ecological warfare by threatening to uproot their vines and their olive trees And uh, that's the point at which the Europeans intervene. But it gets Europe thinking about this new figure of the non-combatant for the first time, I think, that the non-combatant Greeks become the object of the compassion and pity of Europe. And um, that's something new in European history.
1: And the result of that is... uh possibly the first humanitarian intervention, right? We um...
0: Yes, I think one. there are a number of areas in which this story um, has broader lessons for Europe. Um, one of them is that I think, together with abolitionism, it's the first example of the power of international public opinion. And then closely connected with that, the second thing in which it, 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 I think it has a broader lesson is it shows us the first clear case of humanitarian intervention, again, perhaps alongside abolitionism, which is very closely uh, connected with. uh, There is a kind of movement of sympathy to aid the non-combatants, the peasants uh, of the Peloponnese who are who are really victimised from all sides.
1: With this public opinion, um, and there's vast fundraising occurs, uh, and there is some political pressure, uh, well, a lot of political pressure being levied, uh, and positions are being changed. We're seeing traditionally pro-Ottoman uh, nations switching uh, quite radically. We also have the... Um, The the literal intervention, right? It's uh, not quite boots on the ground, but it's ships in the water.
0: Yes. Well, the real ending of this story um, is at the Battle of Navarino, which is probably the last great decisive battle of the Age of Sail that takes place when the combined British and Russian and French fleets sail into the Bay of Navarino, which is off the southwest of the Peloponnese, uh, into a bay... And they, uh, where, which contains the Ottoman Egyptian fleets, and the Ottoman Egyptian fleets are lined in a horseshoe pattern around the bay, and the Allied British French and Russian fleet sails has to sail into the middle of them, so they're surrounded by them. They didn't intend, it seems, to wage war and to have a battle, but they intended to uh, use this demonstration of force. To get the Egyptians to stop their campaigning uh, against the Greeks. And uh, things escalate uh, very quickly. There is some evidence that, in fact, um, the Egyptians had decided this would be a good opportunity to fight the Allied fleet. And there is a a massive sea battle that lasts for five or six hours, uh, at the end of which, Um, amid ferocious fighting, uh, most of the Allied fleet has survived, uh, and most of the Ottoman and Turkish fleet uh, is no longer in existence. And the, the ships are either sunk or they're useless. And so at that point, the Egyptians recognize they're in the Peloponnese with no naval force to resupply them or to get home. And although the Sultan is furious it is effectively the end of the fighting and the end of the war. It's not really the beginning of Greek independence, which doesn't come for another, what should we say, four to five years. Um, There's a lot of diplomacy that has to take place first. But at that point, the fighting is really over. And the Greeks, at least of the Peloponnese, know that they're going to end up with some kind of existence that is no longer under effective Ottoman rule.
1: Yeah, um and... I think that brings us to quite quite a nice sort of uh, full circle. Um, at the start of the this this episode, you mentioned about how you looked at how Greece was, um, shall we say, surviving under the the Troika, um, and this was this is a theme uh, in the book as well, right? This survival, uh, persistence, um, and 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 I believe you even. Uh, brought in uh, the recent events of the pandemic.
0: Yes. Well, you know, uh, uh, the pandemic I brought in because I thought it it got me thinking, uh, as it got many people thinking about the resilience of societies, which societies are resilient, which societies are not resilient. And um, Greek society was pretty resilient in the pandemic and was very resilient, I think, in the Greek War of Independence. That takes us back to the peasants. On the question of independence and austerity, I said that I wrote the book to try and figure out, by going back to the beginning of the struggle for independence, what sovereignty and independence mean. And I think what I, what I learned was that they, there's no one thing that they mean. And, um, okay, I'll, I'll wade helplessly into contemporary politics. I think one of the striking features of a lot of the Brexit um Debate was it seemed as though people thought it was an all or nothing business. Either you were not sovereign and you were enmeshed with lots of other wily powers who were going to weaken you, or you were independent and sovereign and then you had it. But I think the Greek story shows that things don't really work like that. There were a variety of visions of, of uh, freedom and of independence. Uh, and what was not, never on the table. And certainly not something the Greeks got was the idea that they were going to have a completely free hand to carve out the sort of existence that they wanted uh, and then be able to do that. Because they found themselves in a system of states with certain codes and norms. And in fact, it was pretty hierarchical. Uh, And the great powers were going to set up a Greece. The condition for their support, the condition for their destruction of the Ottoman fleet was a state that they would recognize. And, of course, recognition, if you're a small country, is a big deal. And when you want recognition, you have to uh, play by the rules of the game. And in this case, the rules meant a, a king allocated from one of the available princely houses of, of, of Europe, um, uh, a commitment to some kind of representative government, but that was very much to play for. And, and there the Greeks did fight, and they fought over the best part of 15 years for constitutional government, more, maybe 30 years. Um, So the Greeks uh, end up, out of all of this, with basically what they wanted, which is that they're no longer going to be under the sway of the Ottoman Sultan. They're going to have, in some sense, a measure of self-rule. But that rule has come through a Bavarian king, who is now their monarch, uh, and who has certain claims and powers upon them. Uh, and that was the price for it. So, so they, their achievement was a, was was a real one, but it it, it was uh, it, it was not the achievement of a perfect independence because that was never on offer.
1: Oh, right. Well, I think that will be fascinating. And once again, uh, the book uh, is The Greek Revolution, eighteen twenty one, and the Making of Modern Europe. Uh, it's published by Alan Lane. Uh, One last question before we go. Uh, Can we ask what you're working on at the moment? Is there anything else we should be getting excited for? Uh, uh,
0: No, nothing at all. I I have various thoughts, but uh, uh, I want to do something that involves um, a history over thousands and tens of thousands of years um, in Greece. But for that reason, I don't think it will be rushed. So uh, I think we should all take a breather after this.
1: Sounds like quite a modest um, modest goal. Um, Well, thank you very much for joining me today. And I'm sure that uh, this has enlightened many. I I know the book enlightened me, uh, and it was a a real pleasure to read. Um, I've already recommended it to numerous people, including some Greek friends. So we'll see how that goes down. Um, Thank you very much for joining me today.
0: Thank you so much.